So if you've got a Bible, open that up to Proverbs chapter 17. We've been walking through the book of Proverbs, a number of themes and a number of texts. And today we're looking at another theme, so we're going to look at passages that we're not all going to necessarily flip to, but we'll start in Proverbs 17. And we're closing this series today. Uh, next Sunday is going to be a kind of standalone message. And then, Lord willing, the, the following week, we're going to start studying one of my favorite New Testament letters, 1 John. And 1 John is just a picture of a church alight with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A, a place of warmth, a place of the assurance of salvation, uh, a place where people are walking in fellowship in the light and being transformed by the gospel. So I can't wait for 1 John. That's what's coming next, so, so we'll be there momentarily. Uh, the book of Proverbs... So our last talk here this morning is on the subject of friendship. In the book of Proverbs, some scholars have said, might be called a treatise on friendship. It speaks extensively and deeply to friendship. And what I hope is that in our time here, we're not only going to see Proverbs' vision of friendship, but we're going to see how Proverbs' vision of friendship fits in the larger story of the whole Bible. So we're not just going to be in Proverbs, we're going to be all over the place, and what I hope we see by the time we're done is that the Bible itself is a treatise on friendship. So before we get there, I just want to, I've done this the past couple of weeks, and if it's been helpful, I want to do it one more time as we close this series. I want to give you some resources about friendship. So I'll just start with this. This is Dangerous Journey. And ours is worn out because we've read this so many times as a family. Dangerous Journey is Pilgrim's Progress um, that's been kind of simplified and, and you've got pictures and it's just a great story. One of the maybe um, underemphasized truths that is such a powerful undercurrent in the story of Pilgrim's Progress is how important Christian, he's the main character, how important Christian's friends are. If it weren't for hopeful, he's not getting out of Doubting Castle. If it weren't for faithful, they sat together in a cage and faithful was killed for the faith and he was burned alive. He, it's, these, it's these people that God brings alongside that get him to the celestial city. They are such a, a critical part of his forward progress in the faith. So this is just a sweet story that you could read and see what gospel friendship can look like. Uh, if you want to go Biographical, the letters of John Newton. John Newton would be, I love church history. You may know that if you've been here for a while. John Newton would be top three historical heroes for me. He's the author of Amazing Grace. He was, uh, there, he's got a rich and wonderful story. And he loved people. And he was a pastor's pastor. And this lets you eavesdrop on what it looks like to be a friend, to buttress other people, to hold them up, to hold them steady with gospel truth. And you just get to read letter after letter after letter. Beautiful reading. We'll talk about him in the message momentarily. Nonfiction, uh, side by side by Ed Welch, walking with others in wisdom and in love. This kind of tells us how do you do it? Like literally answering the question, what does it look like for us to be friends in the gospel who are making progress in the faith understanding his word and putting it on increasingly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, great book. And then one more, which I don't have a copy of because I read it on Kindle, um, is uh, Made for Friendship by Drew Hunter. 
It's an outstanding book on the subject of friendship. So it's one more book that you get to read after you've read the one that everybody reads, Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, which is pretty much the only book anybody's ever read about friendship for the past 100 years. But anyway, this is another great, Drew Hunter's book, great practical, what does it look like to go deep in gospel friendship. So that's some resources. Here we go, Proverbs 17. I'm just going to read one verse, and then we're going to flip the page. Proverbs 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a difficult time. Flip to Proverbs 18, verse 1. Here's a negative image. One who isolates himself pursues selfish desires. He rebels against all sound wisdom. Proverbs 18, look at verse 24. Notice the difference between many friends, tons and tons of friends, and steady, true friends. One with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. And then I'm going to read this one to you. It's from Jesus in the New Testament. John chapter 15, verse 13 through 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So we are made by God for friendship with God and for friendship with one another. That's kind of the all-encompassing, I think, a biblical statement that we would draw from the whole Bible as it relates to friendship. We were made by God to know friendship with God and to know friendship with one another. Think about it. In Genesis, in the garden, after God created Adam, before sin, he looked at Adam and he said, something's not good. Time out. Everything is great. There's one thing that's not great. Adam's by himself. Adam needs a companion. We can't live and we can't flourish in God's world from the beginning. It was designed this way without companionship. It's why John Stott, the great preacher and scholar from the 20th century, he said that God made us for society, not solitude. We thrive in community. We thrive in friendship. That's how we grow. Um, Bronnie Ware served as a nurse for many years in Australia and she was assisting patients there in moving toward the final weeks of their lives. And she recorded some of those conversations and observations that she made right there holding people's hands as they approached death. And she recorded those things in an international, what became an international bestseller entitled The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Fascinating book. And she says that what she saw is that she noticed that there was a, quote, phenomenal clarity of vision as people approach death. And she would ask her patients, if, if you could go back and you could do life over again, what would you do differently? And one of the most recurring, of, of the top five, one of the most recurring regrets of the dying was this. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. It's interesting, at the end of the Apostle Paul's life, 
What's he asking for? The very closing words, the last words he'll ever write on a piece of paper before he dies in 2 Timothy. And he says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. I need to see you. And then the second to last verse that he writes in the Bible is, try to get here before winter. I need to see you. Do you have, do you have friends? Do you have friends? Do you have someone or a few someones that you can confide in? You can tell them anything, the hard things that are going on in your mind and heart, the dark things that are going on in your mind and heart, and you know they're still gonna love you on the other side of that sentence. They're, they're, they're gonna be confidants. They're trusted voices. These are people, you're encouraging them, you're rooting for them, they're encouraging you, they're rooting for you. People who can say hard things to you, people who can tell you the truth, even if you don't wanna necessarily hear it. So for example, bro, do you have a friend who can just say to you, hey, bro, maybe, maybe you're single, that's your journey, and, and he's just looking at you and saying, man, you're, you seem to be waiting to date a girl who is like perfect physically and perfect spiritually, and I just need to tell you, you're like a six, tops. <laughs> like, you're, I'm just, I'm gonna be the guy who says the hard thing. You're, you're top, you top out at a six, so let's just kind of be real about where we are. Or maybe somebody who is a friend enough just to say, hey, you've, got, you've had cream cheese. I didn't have a t- chance to tell you. You've had cream cheese on your chin all night, but you were so far away and I couldn't get to you until now, right? It's, it's the friend who's gonna tell you the thing that nobody else wants to tell you, but that's what they're there for and they love you and they're not trying to tear you down. The reason that I titled the message what it's titled is because it's one thing to look for meaningful friendship, right? Everybody wants that. Everybody wants a true friend, a confidant. Everybody wants that. But how many people want to focus on becoming the kind of friend that we ourselves need, right? Focusing on giving the gift of friendship to somebody else, sowing to that future in the church and among God's people. So I'm gonna divide our study into two categories, the problem and the pursuit. Number one, the problem. Friendless in a sea of friendships. A groundbreaking book came out some years back called Bowling Alone. And in the book, it documented seismic shift in the experience of Americans in their experience of friendship that took place in a 19-year window. So it documented studies from 1985 to 2004. And in that small window of time, the number of people saying they have no close friends or no close family members digging into their lives and loving on them tripled in 19 years. After that time period, one in four people said, I have exactly zero true friends in that sense. People I can trust with the the hardest things in my life and in my mind. So there's that reality. There's documented evidence that somehow we're feeling detached. And yet at the same time, our social networks are blowing up, right? Last I checked last night, as of last night, I have, hold hold on, right? So I have 2,905 Facebook friends, right? I am overdosing on friendship. I've got more friends than I know what to do with, right? Many of us have social networks that number in the hundreds. I hate to break it to me, but they're not all my friends. 
right? They're, they're, if I'm moving, my wife and I, we're moving to the other part of town. They're not going to be holding the other side of the couch. If something's going on in our world that's really deep and, and heavy, they're not going to show up at the door. They're not going to bring brownies, right? They're, it's not that level of friendship. We understand that. You know, more than one billion people every day check Facebook. That's not how many people are on it. That's how many people check it daily, and yet we still feel disconnected. There's a, there's a new company that came out in Japan some years back, and now it's booming in countries all over the world. And here's a tagline from that company's website. Rentafriend.com is a website that allows you to rent local friends from all over the world. You can rent a local friend to hang out with, go to a movie or restaurant with, or someone to go with you to a party or event. That's actually real. So just stop and imagine for a moment. Imagine a day in the future when that's not weird. Right? Today, that's still weird. But given trajectories, there may come a time in the not-too-distant future where somebody reads that and everybody says, well, of course, I ran a friend last night. Where it's just happening left, right, and center. We do this, right, because we feel isolated. Look, the last place on earth where people should feel the need to rent friends should be the church of Jesus Christ. There should be a tight-knit family fellowship, friendship in Jesus, band of brothers and sisters in Christ that is on display in the church of Jesus Christ because God has called us to friendship, not only with him vertically, but with one another horizontally. But we're up against powerful cultural forces. This is in your notes. We live increasingly isolated lives. We live increasingly isolated lives. Maybe not in the sense that we're, you know, building an underground bunker somewhere in Arizona. Not, not necessarily we're going hermit with this thing. But, but that's not the only kind of, of isolation. Here's Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. I read it earlier. One who isolates himself pursues selfish desires. He rebels against all sound wisdom. So this isolation doesn't necessarily mean living the life of a recluse. This isolation is pursuing selfish desires. In other words, this isolation is more like the person who lives with no strings attached. You, you, you can't pull my chain. I have no obligations to you. You have no obligations to me either. Like if we bump into each other and we do one another good, great, but that's the end of it. There's no necessary ongoing commitment. And maybe it's born of the reality that nobody's looking out for me. So why should I look out for you? I'm busy enough looking out for me since nobody's looking out for me. And maybe some of it's born of hurt. You know what? I've gone out of my way. I've risked. I've been vulnerable for other people. I've been burned once or twice. And so peace out. I'm, I'm not in this anymore. I'm done. So good luck trying to get me to reciprocate in a deep relationship. And so in that sense, you're unwilling. If that's what you embrace, this kind of radical individualism, you embrace this lifestyle that says, I'm unwilling to accept the costs of real friendship. And what are the costs of real friendship? Well, where do we begin? <laughs> right? The, the slights and the accidental sometimes insults and humiliations that are involved in any meaningful relationship and being overlooked and mistaken and misheard and all of that. And that's just Tuesday, right? That's not special. That's, that's just relationship any day of the week. If you're invested deeply, you're going to experience that. So if we 
back out and say, I'm going to play it safe. I'm not going to risk anything. What do we become? It forms our characters. This is what C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Four Loves, about risk. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will be unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable, the only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. There again, our, um, our technology has enabled new levels of isolation, new levels of detachment. So you can see, you know, the kid who hops into the car with all his friends, hops into a car full of friends and does what? Puts on headphones. Right, and what's, what is that saying to everybody in the car? I, I'm, I'm here on my own terms. I'm watching. If it looks like fun is being had, I'll take these things off. But until that happens, I'm, I'm doing me, right? You do you, I'll do me. And there's this, this settled, decided detachment. You, you, can, you can well imagine. We've probably all seen it. You can well imagine walking into the school cafeteria and you see six girls sitting around a cafeteria table. Five of them are looking at their phones. One is looking at her food. She is surrounded by friends and she's eating alone at the same time. She is friendless in a sea of friends. And you might say, you know, the, the response to that from younger generations is often something like, but but if I don't have my phone, I mean, if I'm not looking at my phone, I'm going to get bored. How are we going to have friendships whereby we say, I would take a bullet for you if I'm not willing to be bored for you, to sit here bored with you, us together being bored as friends? I'm that committed to you. We're going to work ourselves through this. We're going to work our way out of this boredom, out of this lull, back out into the open of joy in friendship. But Proverbs describes friendship not as detachment, but as deep engagement, personal engagement, words of love and affection entering into suffering in people's lives. The connection in Proverbs of friends is so profound that Proverbs says, think twice before you make somebody in that inner circle of your friendships. Because you're going to esteem them so highly, you will be shaped into their image. You will, you will become like that which you esteem. That's why Proverbs, so many of them say things like this. Don't make friends with an angry person. And don't be a companion of a hot-tempered one. In other words, why is it saying that? Because the influence is real. That's why Proverbs 13.20 says this. The one who walks with the wise will become wise. And it, but it goes both ways. But a companion of fools will suffer harm. It's, it's a predictive text. It's, it's prophecy in the book of Proverbs. You walk with the wise, here's where your life is going. You walk with fools, here's where your life is going. The Proverbs doesn't hesitate to say, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. 
I'll show you the trajectory of your life by looking at your gang, looking at your squad. This is where you're headed. That's why the very first speech of a father to his son in the book of Proverbs, right there in Proverbs chapter one, is he gets on his knee and he says, son, hey, don't run with those guys. They're fools. They're fools. And you know what? They're cruel of heart. And you run with them and you'll become callous inside. You'll become callous toward people's pain. I don't want that. Your mom and I don't want that for you. More importantly, the Lord doesn't want that for you. Son, don't run with that gang. It's the wrong group. People who mock others for sport and attack the innocent gratuitously. He says, that's not your crowd. I heard someone say, you are the average of your five closest friends. If that's true, where is your life headed? If you're the average of your five closest friends, where is that taking you, right? So much of Proverbs is written to the young. So let me just pull the young in here for just a second. Middle school kids, high school kids. Let me ask you this. Does the character of your closest friends in your life right now, does the character of those friends suggest that your life is trending toward wisdom or trending toward foolishness? If you stay with them and you become more like them and their influence and their influence in your life, are you moving more toward justice, more toward compassion, or more toward cool factor? Are you moving deeper into humility, deeper into courage and conviction, or deeper into trendiness and triviality? Proverbs wants to get us thinking about the decisions we make and who we bring all the way inside. If you become like your closest friends, will you fear the Lord more by the end of this year? Will you love him more deeply and cherish his word more fully? I, um, I sat in a, a training session that Brook Hill Student Ministry puts on every summer it's called Band Camp, and it's put together for musicians, people who are desire to grow in their musicianship and maybe eventually serve in student ministry or in worship ministry. It's just an excellent thing, and it happens all week long. And I'm sitting in a training session that's being led by one of our students. It's, it's Trip Watkins, and Trip Watkins is leading that session. I'm sitting there. I'm taking notes. I'm, it was so good. I'm snapping pictures and sending it to his parents. I was that guy. It was really, it was not my finest moment. But anyway... I was just so proud, and I couldn't get up there fast enough to say, that was awesome. What you were investing in these younger kids, that was amazing. Your leadership, just your, the way that you were encouraging them and pouring truth into them. It was so rich. And you know what else I was thinking as he talked? Literally, in my mind, I, I thought, you know what I needed in high school? I needed a trip Watkins. Because Grace King High School was eating my lunch, and I needed one other believer, like one other believer who said, us together, we're marching forward. Um, we're going to urge each other forward toward the wisdom of God's word. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's what's supposed to be happening in the church among friends. It's what's supposed to be happening in student ministry and college ministry all over the church. I pray, I, I've been praying this this week as I'm preparing for this message, that um, this kind of verbiage, that our students would launch a full-scale rebellion against this world's definition of friendship and just say, this is where we part ways. Y'all are going that way, we're going this way. God's word instructs us in how to do this wisely. Man, wouldn't that be awesome? 
urging one another toward courage and holiness and hope and mission. That's the stuff. So if we held what Proverbs says about friendship up against our friendship, we'll probably realize, next point, most of what we call friendship is really acquaintanceship. Friendship is not something superficial in Proverbs. Again, a sampling, Proverbs 18, 24. A friend sticks closer than a brother, Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So what's God's purpose for our friendships? Point number two, the pursuit. God's will for our friendships. And this is addressed by not only Proverbs, but the whole Bible. Friendship is, in a sense, at the center of the storyline of the Bible. What happens before the world exists? God exists. God is triune. God in three persons, we just sang it. Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What's going on a billion years before the world exists? The Father is honoring the Son and the Son honoring the Father. This mutual honor society of the community of the one God, the triune God. And creation was the enlarging of the circle of the joy of the triune God. So let us make man in our own image. In his image, he created them. Right? It, it doesn't say, let us, let us make man in our image. In his image, he created him. No, you, when you're going to create something in the image of a community God, it's going to have to be a them that's created to reflect the image of the eternal God. This is in your notes. God made us to enjoy friendship with him. So, if you're reading the early goings of the Bible and there you are in the garden and everything is great, so you ask the question, well, how do we get from a garden? I know what happens in the New Testament. Jesus ends up on a cross. The Son of God ends up dying on a cross. How do we get from a garden to the Son of God dying on a cross? Well, here's, here's the big story of the Bible. God made us to enjoy friendship with him, but what did we do? We unfriended him, right? In the garden, we, we said something like, well, you know, we need, we need some space, it's gotten a little close. We think it would be good for us to have a little bit of space. And, but here's what happened, and James talks about it in the New Testament. Friendship with the world put us at what? Enmity with God. That's what ended up happening. Our friendship was broken, and so now we need to be reconciled. If we're ever going to get back together, we're going to need a reconciliation work. We had rebelled against God. And they brought in all these new experiences in their own hearts and lives, right? Fear, this new thing. Well, what is this? It's, it's called fear. Shame, that's shame. It's going to be here for a while. Guilt, all that stuff just comes flooding into their, their own self-conscious existence, and they're lost. This is the first time in human history, and there, there's this sense of lostness. And what do, they, what do they hear the moment they've sinned against God? They hear the sound of God calling out in the garden, and what's he saying? Adam, where are you? It's not that the offending party went in search to make reconciliation with the offended party. The offended party came 
looking for them. The offended party came to make it right. God makes the first move in the gospel. God initiates contact with a broken, rebellious world. They're lost and he's saying, where are you? He's finding. God is in the garden seeking and saving the lost. And that word lost, it's, it's one of the Bible's favorite metaphors for the experience we have when we feel and we realize, I'm a long way away from God. Maybe I can't even track all the footsteps it took to get me here, but I'm a long way away from God, and I'm lost. And maybe some of you here this morning, you would say, yeah, that perfectly describes where I am. That's a perfect word. I feel lost. I feel I've walked a long way from home. I am far away from God. Look, here's the good news. God is in hiding. He's seeking. Being a local church that centers every one of our gatherings on the gospel of Jesus Christ means that there's a sense in which every single Sunday, Jesus is walking this room. And what's he saying? He's saying, where are you? He's seeking the lost. And he doesn't ask where are you because he doesn't know where you are. He asks, where, you, where are you? Because he's using that question to awaken this sensation in your soul that says, I want to be found. I'm tired of hiding. I want to be found. So I'm right here. I hear you asking where I'm at. I'm right here. You find me on aisle four. Come get me on aisle four. That's, look, that's, that's the glory of Jesus. He is seeking and saving the lost. I'm tired of hiding here I am. That, you know what the New Testament calls that? Faith and repentance. I'm tired of hiding. Come and get me. Have you put your trust in this Savior who comes and gets rebels, who comes and gets those who have sinned against him and says, I'm gonna hide you in my cross where I paid all your debts. That Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before he's arrested. These are some of his last, most cherished words. And he frames up the cross in terms of friendship in that talk. John 15, 13, read it earlier. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Friendship is at the heart of the gospel. Friendship is at the heart of the Bible. All who put their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will find him to be the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Him as the friend who loves at all times and never fails and is born for adversity. No friendship in your life is more sustaining and more important than friendship with Christ himself. The church used to sing, right? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our, not only our sins, our griefs, our sins and griefs, what's bad and what's hard, we bring it all to our friend, Jesus, and he bears it with us. He steps into the darkness, he sits with us in the ashes and sustains us. But here's the thing, God wants us to enjoy friendship with him but, but this too, God made us to enjoy and extend friendship to others. 
It's not just that vertical relationship, glorious and essential as that is. God says, I want to give you the gift of friendship among yourselves. I want to bless you with that gift of human, earthly friendship. We were made to know the gift of human friendship. You know, the oldest problem in the world is not sin. It's loneliness. Before sin entered the world, God said there's something wrong. And the wrong thing was Adam's by himself. Adam lives in solitude. It's not good for the man to be alone. Sin hasn't entered the world. In other words, Adam walked with God in the cool of the garden, and yet he needed friends. Adam never had a dry, quiet time, and yet he needed human friendship, human companionship. The one ache in this world that is not the result of sin is the ache for human friends, companions, book that came out several years ago called The Briar Patch Gospel, Fearlessly Following Jesus into the Thorny Places, and the author of the book talks about the war zone that is middle school, right? The emotional torrent that comes over those who walk through middle school. And he talks about a boy named Jerry in his middle school. Here's what he says. We were in the seventh grade. For most of us, the saving grace that rescued us from the universal cruelty of middle school was finding someone to look down on who was more awkward, more uncoordinated, and more shunned than we were. In my school, that someone was Jerry. He was the unchallenged low man on the totem pole. Even he knew it. I wasn't popular or cool or athletic, but at least I wasn't Jerry. And he goes on to describe... Jerry's appearance, but then he describes the main thing that made people pull away from Jerry, and it was, it was the smell. There was a smell that followed Jerry everywhere he went, and, and it was incredibly pungent. People would hold their breath as he walked past them. He said this, when Jerry passed us in the halls, it was as if he was surrounded by a repellent magnetic field. Nobody would get within six feet. He was like Moses parting the Red Sea. And the author goes on to describe a moment where he said, I was, I was in the boys' bathroom and I heard the door open and I looked and it was Jerry and he said, I, I couldn't get out. And he said, so I held my breath. I, I tried to draw it in so I could hold it as long as I possibly could. And he said, I noticed that Jerry hadn't approached the urinal in the customary way. He was standing a little sideways. In my mind, I was screaming, don't look, don't look, but curiosity got the best of me, and I violated laboratory protocol. Glancing quickly in Jerry's direction, trying to figure out his odd posture, Jerry had a catheter bag. I didn't know what that was at the time. All I knew was he had a bag full of urine attached to his waist and hidden under his ill-fitting clothing. I realized the smell wasn't even his fault. I wondered for the first time how it must feel to be him, to have literally no friends, to sit alone at lunch every day, to have no one get within six feet at any time. What if you could find the Christian students on campus and you you couldn't find them because they were just wearing, you know, 
student ministry swag or because they had Christian-themed T-shirts? What if you could find him because they were sitting with Jerry? What if you could find them because their hearts weren't cruel but were kind and their friendship was missional? It was outgoing, loving, merciful, compassionate friendship. You know, the early church was a shining city to the friendless, to the outcast, to the poor. They would pull up at the window of the church and they would look inside and say, look how they treat their poor. It's like everybody's on one common level and they're all dear friends, rich and poor, slave and free. Every ethnicity, it's like they're one people. Who does that in the Roman Empire? How do we get inside? And it made the gospel beautiful. It sparkled like a gem to them. And they said, tell us, whatever it is that you're saying in the world, tell us, because it's beautiful. And it adorned the message of the gospel and it lent credibility. You know, Jesus said it would do that. Jesus said, you know how the world's gonna know that you're my disciples and that the Father sent me? By the love you have for one another. There's gonna be missional success born of genuine friendship in the life of the church. This is gonna get crazy things done in the world if you love each other as friends. Many Christians know the name William Cooper. It looks like it's spelled Cowper, but William Cooper who was a great, phenomenal, prolific hymn writer and poet, a deep soul. He wrote, there is a fountain filled with blood. He wrote, God moves in mysterious ways. All kinds of just beautiful writing. What is less known is that he had a profound struggle with depression for his whole life. And his sole patrol was John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, and John Newton was his pastor and his counselor and most importantly, his friend. And Newton would say, hey, uh, hey, William, I'm gonna go visit congregants today and I want you to come with me. And they would walk all over the parish together. He would say, You're just gonna, we're just gonna walk together out in the breeze and we're gonna talk on our way. We're gonna go pray with this congregant member over here. We're gonna go catechize this congregant member over here and you're gonna, you and I are gonna walk together. And they would just walk all over town. And then Cooper faced it and a much more acute struggle with depression and he had to be put on suicide watch because he attempted suicide on a number of occasions. And then he was unresponsive to Newton's encouragement. The kinds of things Newton had said before that brightened his countenance no longer did anything to William Cooper. And you know what Newton said? He said, come live with me. Wow. It's time you move in. And he walked with this friend. And, and you read their letters and their correspondences and there's no sense in which Cooper was his project. Cooper was his friend. It was mutual. He learned from this man. Here's what he said. This is the summary of my walk, John Newton's walk with the man William Cooper. The Lord who had brought us together had so knit our hearts and affections that for nearly 12 years we were seldom separated for 12 hours at a time when we were awake and at home. Now he's gonna give the summary of the first six years and the second six years. The first six I passed in daily admiring and trying to imitate him. During the second six, I walked pensively with him in the valley of the shadow of death. A friend loves at all times. 
and a brother is born for adversity. I love it's a parting. You can quickly pass it if you're doing a Bible reading plan and you're going through 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. 3 John chapter 15 has this just beautiful passing language of friendship. Here's how he closes it down. John's leaving and he says, peace to you. The friends send you greetings. Greet the friends by name. Gospel friendship has been the hallmark of the church for 2,000 years. The last place on earth people should be able to walk inside and not find a friend is the church of Jesus Christ. How's that for language of the church? What if we started talking like that? Hey, peace to you. Friends, greeting you in Christ's name. You know what will turn this church into a magnet? If we have Proverbs 8, 6 reality in our friendships, here's Proverbs 8, 6. Listen, for I speak of noble things, and what my lips say is right, for my mouth tells the truth, and wickedness is detestable to my lips. All the words from my mouth are righteous. None of them are deceptive or perverse. So you got friendship where there's truth speaking. There's not guile. There's not two-faced. There's not gossip. There's truth speaking, and it's not truth speaking to blast somebody to smithereens. It's, it's speaking the truth in love. It's truth that doesn't tear down but builds up. What will make this church a magnet if we have Proverbs 27.9 reality in our friendships. Oil and perfume makes the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. That's magnetic. Another thing, constancy in friendship is magnetic. Proverbs 27.10, don't abandon your friend or your father's friend. I was thinking about it this week. I don't think I've ever been in a room in all my Sundays of growing up in church and being in church, I don't think I've ever been in a room on a Sunday morning when the topic of the sermon was friendship. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon preached on friendship. The only one that I can remember hearing, I was working on a construction site in college, and it affected me so deeply. I remember the pastor's name. Somebody told me about him. I haven't listened to a sermon from him since. His name is Carter Conlon. He preaches at Times Square Church in New York City, and I I listened to this message from Carter Conlon on friendship, and I still remember one of the sentences in his message. He said, Friendship, biblically, is the person who's walking in when everybody else is walking out. And there was something so magnetic in my own mind and heart about the constancy of that kind of friendship, right? So instead of bolting when we have our first differences, God says, stay a while, fight through it, right? Listen better, try to understand better, humble ourselves more, By the grace of God, come toward one another. Friendships like that change the climate of the church. Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. One of the central purposes of friendship in the book of Proverbs is the ministry of encouragement. Same thing was happening even in the New Testament. Paul, in his last letter in 2 Timothy, he's praying a blessing on someone who's named there. His name is Onesiphorus. And why is he praying this blessing on Onesiphorus? He's like, may God show him mercy. Why? Because he often refreshed me when I was in chains. 
ministry of encouragement, the ministry of refreshment. So Brook Hills, two things for us to think about as we move forward and we desire to apply this to our lives, two practical things. Number one, thank someone. So who has been there in a unique way this year for you? Ben Rector is one of our favorite recording artists and he has a song about what might we start doing if we knew that the world was gonna end? And one of the things that he says, I love it. He says, I'd call up everyone I loved and drive them out to California. And what would they do out in California? He said, we'd say all the things that we'd been scared to death to say until then. What are you afraid to say that might make your relationship deeper this week? Is there affection in our relationship, in our speech toward one another? In our small groups, is there depth of friendship? Are we pursuing each other? Are we sustaining and speaking words that sustain one another? Paul said to the church at Philippi in the first chapter, it's right for me to think this way about you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, in my imprisonment and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Somebody came up to me after the first service and he talked about what a friend said to him after 36 years, a friend said it this week and said, you are worth more than a thousand friends. And he's right here in tears. He said, 36 years. He said, it changed my life to hear those words. Two, reset your friendships. Reset your friendships. What? What would it take for you to become more available to true friends? Not everybody, but more available to a few true, close friends. How could your small group take a step toward deeper relationships? Do you, um, do you ask your friends questions that open up spaces for real talk? Um, so maybe you've got better ones, but here's just three very brief ones. Ask your friend, what's good? What's good right now? And then ask them, what's hard? And then ask them, what can I help you carry? And now we're on our way, aren't we? <laughs> A friend loves at all times, and her brother is born for adversity.